You're listening to episode four of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is defined as a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who've walked this path before me. This episode tells the story of my first miscarriage, 11 months after the stillbirth of my son, Ellis. I talk about my experience of pregnancy after loss and the emotions it brought up for me. I also go into detail about what my doctor's visits were like, my unexpected visit to the emergency room, and what it was like to miscarry with the aid of prescription medication. If any of this might be triggering for you, feel free to skip this episode. My intention is not to cause you anxiety or heartache, but to help those of you out there with a similar experience to feel less alone. Here's the episode. On the morning of February 21st, 2019, the month following my second chemical pregnancy, I finally got my BFP, or big fat positive, as they say in the trying to conceive community. My OB had put me on progesterone supplements that cycle, which I started taking after ovulation. The supplements seemed to make my basal body temperature chart look really good. There was a steady increase that often signals pregnancy. I'd been tracking my temp with the AVA bracelet for about 8 months and had a pretty good feel for my average cycle temperature and heart rate stats. This cycle looked really good, just like the last cycle when I had the chemical pregnancy, until one morning when I woke up to a slightly lower temp. It had been climbing every day, so when it dropped, I immediately thought I was out for the month and that my period would come. I decided to take a pregnancy test anyways, just to have confirmation that I wasn't pregnant and to let myself move forward. I crawled out of bed before my husband Hunter was up and felt adrenaline start to course through my body as I tiptoed into the bathroom and quickly tore into the pink wrapper of the first response test. My eyes were still a little sleepy, so when I took the test and a second line quickly appeared, I blinked several times and watched it become two very bold lines not faint like the pregnancy tests I had taken before with the chemical pregnancies. It was just as strong as the line had been on Ellis's pregnancy test. I was overcome with emotion and started crying. I was almost shaking with adrenaline. I walked into the bedroom and held the test up to Hunter as he was getting dressed for work. I couldn't stop crying and Hunter hugged me. I assured him they were happy tears. He left for work and we hugged several times, acknowledging how exciting it was to be pregnant again. Once he was gone, I had so much energy running through my body, a mixture of excitement, elation, reparation, sadness, fear, and gratitude. I didn't want to lose this baby, and I understood very well how much that was out of my control. I called my OB's office to ask the nurse if I needed to continue taking the three remaining progesterone pills I had, and whether I needed to come in for a blood test. She congratulated me over the phone and later left a message telling me to continue taking the pills and to come in for a blood test. I love my new OB. She came highly recommended and is compassionate about our loss and confident about helping us to bring home a healthy baby. 
Unfortunately, we did not receive good support from the group of midwives I saw with Ellis. A few weeks after he was stillborn, I had a follow-up appointment with one of the midwives, and she forgot that he died. This was extremely upsetting. She was on call the night of my C-section, and I have pictures of her in the room with us while we were holding him. When I was in their office for the follow-up, I also had to wait 45 minutes in a waiting room full of pregnant women and children, which was extremely uncomfortable so soon after loss. None of the staff acknowledged my loss, and they treated me like just any other mother who had given birth to a living baby. Sitting in the waiting room now, knowing I was pregnant again, was exciting. I'd been in the same room several times over the previous six months while we were trying to conceive. They called my name and I went back to have my blood drawn. The nurse congratulated me for being pregnant and asked how long we'd been trying. I told her since September, but also that we'd lost a baby at 31 weeks in May. She softened and said her cousin lost twins and now has an eight-month-old. People often respond to me with these kinds of stories on a regular basis. She was very sweet to me from that point forward, and I felt better for having mentioned Alice. I saw my mom that morning, and it was so hard not to tell her I was pregnant, but I waited until that weekend when my sister was coming into town and we were all together. We ended up telling both of our families that weekend, and there were tears of joy and lots of excitement. I certainly had a fear of telling people I was pregnant again. Like somehow that would jinx it. But I also knew that I needed lots of support through pregnancy after loss, and therefore needed the people in my life to know. We got positive blood test results at about five weeks. My HCG went from 135 to 448 over the course of five days, which wasn't a huge increase, but good enough for the doctor to feel satisfied. My progesterone was high at 38.5, which is normally found in the second trimester. This was still in the healthy range, so my doctor had me keep taking the progesterone supplements because she said there was no harm in taking them. She scheduled my first scan for nine weeks. The first week, I spent quite a bit of time researching prenatal vitamins. I started to feel a strong desire to want to control the pregnancy as much as possible, but I also didn't want to become obsessive about how I treated my body. I knew very well that so much of the baby's development happens regardless of what I do or don't do. Our bodies are amazing. In my prenatal vitamin research, I learned that some people cannot absorb folic acid, which is the synthetic form of folate found in many prenatal vitamins. Folate is a critical nutrient for the development of the baby, especially in early pregnancy. So I ordered two kinds of prenatal vitamins that both contained ample amounts of whole food-based folate, the form that is digestible by everyone. As each day went by, I became more and more comfortable with the idea of being pregnant again. I started telling my closest friends and extended family that I was pregnant, though I still wouldn't let myself indulge in their full excitement and felt the need to dampen it by acknowledging how early it was and that nothing is guaranteed. One thing I became aware of was that every time I went to the bathroom, I prepared myself to see blood in my underwear. I remember doing this when I was pregnant with Ellis, too so it's hard to judge whether this tendency was amplified because of my loss. I guess it was a defense mechanism, so that I wouldn't be as surprised if it did happen. Early pregnancy symptoms can be so frustrating. Something like spotting can be both a normal symptom and also a sign of something going wrong. At week six, I started to have minor intermittent cramping and twinges of pain on the right side of my pelvis. 
I googled my symptoms and freaked out a bit that I might have an ectopic pregnancy. I'd had this exact same anxiety just a few months before, which seems to be a common fear of early pregnancy. Oftentimes, the embryo attaches in the fallopian tube, where it can cause the tube to rupture, which is extremely painful and can be life-threatening to the mother. My rational mind understood that my symptoms did not signal an ectopic pregnancy, which usually includes spotting and consistent pain. I had neither of these symptoms, but I still obsessed over every twinge and read lots of forums. Many other women worried over the same thing and ended up getting an ultrasound, only to find a healthy baby in the uterus. Again, cramping is one of those annoying pregnancy symptoms that can be both normal or a sign of something gone wrong. In week seven, I continued to have cramping and on a whim decided at the end of the week to announce my pregnancy on social media after realizing that it was Pregnancy After Loss Awareness Day. I was surprised by how much my anxiety decreased after sharing. It felt so good to have all the love, support, and prayers, regardless of the outcome. I continued to have intermittent pain in the right side of my pelvis and decided to call my OB's office. The nurse asked me a series of questions, which I seemingly passed, so she told me to just drink more water. This was super frustrating, and I doubted her advice would help. It felt like she wasn't listening to me. Another week went by, and I was drinking more water, but still having the pain and anxiety. So my mom encouraged me to call again for peace of mind. Unfortunately, I got the same nurse on the phone, and she asked me if I'd been drinking more water, which was both annoying and humorous. I told her I really just wanted peace of mind and asked if I could come in for a scan. She said their technician was already out for the day and that I could go into the emergency room and ask for an ultrasound evaluation. At the time, I didn't feel like my pain warranted an emergency room visit, so I decided to hold out for a few more days until the ultrasound we had scheduled with my OB at nine weeks. The pain got pretty bad one night while I was trying to go to sleep, and I stayed awake imagining that my tube was going to rupture at any moment. I decided I would go to the ER the next day to stop all the worrying. Hunter went with me, and they took my blood to test my HCG levels and set me up with an IV. We had to wait an hour for the ultrasound tech to arrive on site, which really rubbed up my anxiety. She finally arrived and was very kind. I told her I'd been Googling all the scary things that could be going on, and she gently told me not to do that. She started with an abdominal ultrasound and didn't say anything for several minutes. I couldn't see the screen, which was pretty agonizing. I kept looking at Hunter to see if he could see anything. I couldn't stand it anymore and finally asked the technician what she saw. She said I had a benign corpus luteum cyst that was causing the pain on my right ovary, which is normal in early pregnancy, and she also confirmed the baby was in the uterus. I replied, thank God. Then she said the words I didn't expect to hear again. I can't find the heartbeat. She decided to do a transvaginal ultrasound to get a better look, and again, she didn't say anything during the scan. It turned out that not only could she not see a heartbeat, but she couldn't see a fetal pole, which I learned is basically the baby. I was so confused, as I hadn't even considered the possibility of there not being a baby. I'd been tracking my pregnancy with an app and thought I was about eight weeks along based on when I had ovulated. The baby was supposed to be the size of an olive, 
My heart sunk. The doctor came back in about 30 minutes later after he had consulted with the radiologist. He said there was a yolk sac, but no fetal pole, and they dated the sac at six weeks and three days. My HCG was around 28,000, which was in line with that estimation. The outlook seemed bleak to me, but the doctor was still optimistic and said it could still just be too early. The ultrasound and appointment with my OB was already scheduled four days later, so I figured that would determine whether the pregnancy was viable. I wondered if the ER just didn't have a strong enough ultrasound machine. We went home after our four-hour ER visit, and I was completely exhausted. I was relieved to know the cause of my pain was benign, but my mind was now swirling with the news I hadn't expected. I spent the next several hours on Google, entering each measurement I'd received and searching forums for pregnancy stories with similar circumstances as mine to gauge the possible outcomes. There were just as many success stories as there were sad stories, leaving me feeling very much in a gray zone. After several hours of research on my phone, Hunter gently suggested I turn my attention to something else, which was really good advice, but really difficult to follow. We shared our ER experience with our immediate family and inner circle of friends because I needed all the support I could get. I felt guilty for bringing them into the emotionally charged period of waiting with me, but I'd also learned that the people who really love you are okay with sitting in the dark with you. I went to my OB appointment several days later with Hunter, expecting to be told I would miscarry. This was again my defense mechanism, preparing myself for the worst instead of embracing hope. I'm not sure which posture is better. Hunter was much more hopeful than me. We sat in the waiting room and waited much longer than usual, about 45 minutes. There were pregnant women in the waiting room, including a couple about our age that appeared to be in the first trimester. They were clearly joyful and excited, which seriously annoyed me. I felt hot with envy, knowing I might never again have that experience of a blissfully naive pregnancy. We were finally called into the tiny ultrasound room, and the tech asked how I was doing. I told her about the ER visit and also about Ellis. I wanted her to know my history in hopes that she would be more sensitive to our situation. She started the scan, and this time I could see the screen right in front of me. I saw her mark CRL, which I remembered from all my Googling was crowned to rump length. This gave me hope for a moment, that maybe she saw a baby. I couldn't exactly tell myself, but it didn't look like an empty sack. Again, the tech didn't say anything to us during the scan, which is so anxiety-inducing. She finished the ultrasound rather quickly and told me sweetly to get dressed and go back to the waiting room for the doctor. We entered the space of waiting again, and after about 10 minutes, I got a notification on my phone from the patient portal app for my OB's office. There was an update to my chart. I clicked through and saw the new diagnosis, threatened miscarriage. I showed it to Hunter, completely dismayed. Just at that moment, the happy couple got called in by the ultrasound tech, which made me so much more annoyed by them. I didn't like this part of myself, being envious of other people's health and happiness. After more waiting, we got called in to see the doctor. The nurse took my vitals, and then we waited a bit more in the patient room. My OB came in, and I immediately tried to read her. She was energetic and upbeat. This confused me. 
She went on to say that the ultrasound tech was able to see a fetal pole, which they couldn't see on Thursday at the ER. She also thought she saw a flicker of a heartbeat, but she couldn't confirm whether it was the baby's or my own, which confounded me. I told her about the threatened miscarriage notification I had received, and she apologized, assuring me that that was not my diagnosis, but simply their way of classifying certain symptoms, like the pain I was having. They did confirm that the pain was from a corpus luteum cyst, which she said is completely normal and nothing to worry about. My OB was hopeful and told us that she wanted us to come back in two more weeks for another ultrasound. She acknowledged that this would be an agonizing wait, but told me to take it day by day. So we left the appointment cautiously optimistic. I'd been saying prayers for the best possible outcome, whatever that might be, and was hoping that we would see a fetal pole at the second ultrasound, which we did. I'd also been feeling increasingly more pregnant, with fatigue, hunger, headache, changing taste buds, and sore breasts, all symptoms I'd experienced around the same time with Ellis, and I didn't have any signs of miscarriage. I'd read about what's referred to as a missed miscarriage, where the body doesn't recognize that the baby stopped growing and keeps producing pregnancy hormones, but that happens in less than 1% of pregnancies, so I figured odds were in my favor. But I also had a complicated relationship with statistics, now that I'd been one of the less than 1% of mothers whose baby was stillborn. As the next ultrasound appointment loomed, I found myself growing more and more anxious. Logically, I knew that even if I got a good answer, it wouldn't guarantee a healthy baby. The answer wouldn't satisfy my ultimate desire to be in control. I'd already learned that lesson with Ellis, that no matter what I do, no matter how well things are going, most things are just out of my control, and I have to learn to ride the wave. During the two weeks of waiting, I vacillated between hope and my ego's desire to protect myself from harm. Hope felt harmful because it made me vulnerable to the pain of loss. Therefore, my ego wanted to put up defenses and prevent me from feeling hope, and instead, I prepared myself for another loss. I found myself daydreaming and making plans for how I would tell people, and imagining what a DNC might be like. I also found myself thinking things like, a miscarriage won't be as bad as stillbirth, and that I'm so strong now that it won't affect me as much. I'd spent the majority of the pregnancy thinking that I'd already lost it. When I reflect on that, I can really see the effects of the trauma I experienced from stillbirth. When I was pregnant with Ellis, I spent the first nine weeks in total blissful naivety. We didn't even have a scan until 10 weeks, and everything looked great. I've since talked with several friends about how even after babies are born, there are a million things to be fearful of as they move through infancy to adulthood. Having a healthy baby is just the beginning, and I don't want to set myself up to be constantly worrying and fearful. Unfortunately, I started spotting a couple days before our second scan, and of course, I googled everything that could be causing that. My heart sunk, and I began thinking the worst. We went to our sonogram, and I felt a dark cloud looming. I prepared myself for no growth and no heartbeat. We were called from the waiting room and I got prepped for the scan, feeling a sense that I was walking into something I knew I couldn't run away from. The screen was in front of me and I saw the sonographer measure the baby. I immediately looked for a heartbeat and couldn't see one. 
She said, this is concerning. I didn't say anything, giving her space to continue. She was silent, still moving the wand around, and I asked, what's concerning? She responded, do you want me to see if one of the doctors can meet with you now to talk with you about it so you don't have to wait? I responded, yes, please, and started crying. She kept scanning. I'm pretty sure she said she was sorry. Hunter came and grabbed my hand. The tech left the room and I started sobbing. I got dressed and Hunter held me until the nurse came to take us to another room and take my vitals. I didn't say much and wondered if she knew. We waited for the doctor and I sobbed while 90s pop music played over the speakers. The doctor wasn't my normal OB, but she handled things very well. She said she was sorry and that this is unfortunately very common. One in four. I knew the statistics already. She started to give us a primer on grief and I gently informed her that we'd lost our first child to stillbirth almost a year ago. She looked at us painfully, understanding the gravity of compounded loss. She shared that she also lost a baby at this point in her pregnancy and asked if I would like to know about her experience. I said yes, and she told us that she chose to take pills to help the miscarriage happen more quickly. She gave us our options, either to let things happen naturally, to take the pills, or to have a DNC procedure, which would require outpatient surgery. I went into the appointment with this option in the back of my mind because I'd interviewed my friend Sarah Fox for this podcast just the week before, and she shared her negative experience taking the pills and how she ended up needing a DNC anyways. The doctor assured me that at this gestational age, the pills would most likely take care of removing what she referred to as the tissues of conception. She said that as long as the gestational sac was gone, a follow-up DNC would not be necessary if any other tissues remained. She also assured me that I would not be able to identify the baby's remains, which I was really concerned about. She emphasized that after taking the pills, we could start trying right away and share that when she took the pills, she got pregnant again two weeks later. With a DNC, there could be complications, such as uterine scarring, which could make it more difficult to get pregnant again. We decided the pills were the best option for our situation, and I really just wanted to get things over with. She said I could take the pills that night. I was concerned about pain, so she gave me a prescription for painkillers and also said I could drink a glass of wine if I wanted. This was a welcome moment of comic relief. I started to feel more hopeful after talking with her. She was compassionate and straightforward. She said that when miscarriage happens this early, it's usually because of a missing chromosome that causes a misalignment of DNA, kind of like train tracks being slightly off, which doesn't allow the train to keep moving. She said that this was my body's way of stopping a pregnancy that wasn't viable, but she also didn't downplay our loss, emphasizing that we still lost a baby. Hunter and I were in separate cars, so I drove home alone. I got into the car and cried hot tears the whole way home. At one point, I yelled out several curse words and felt my sadness morphing into rage. I was so angry that this was happening. It didn't feel fair. I'd done so much work to heal after Ellis' stillbirth. Why did another baby have to die? We went to the grocery store later, and I darkly joked that we had the most ridiculous shopping cart ever. Abortion pills, painkillers, maxi pads, 
lubricant to insert the pills vaginally, and a bottle of wine. It felt good to laugh at such an absurd and painful situation. We picked up dinner and tried our best to relax for the rest of the evening. I inserted the pills around 11 p.m. and went to bed, though it was hard to sleep anticipating what was to come. I maybe slept for an hour and woke up to a tightening sensation in my stomach. The tightening held for a minute and then slowly evaporated. A few minutes later, it started again. I began to wonder if this is what the beginning of labor contractions might feel like. The waves slowly began to move from my stomach to the middle of my abdomen and eventually landed in my pelvis, where I normally felt period cramps. Each wave began with a tingling sensation throughout my whole body. In my late night haze, I tried to embrace these sensations and imagined it as sparkling energy moving through my body. I tried to think of the pills as medicine that was helping me give birth to my baby. This shift in perspective helped to soften the emotional and physical pain I was experiencing. Every hour or so, I felt a strong urge to go to the bathroom, where I would pass blood clots and tissue. The doctor had warned me that she is used to seeing a lot of blood, so the experience wasn't shocking to her, but that I should prepare myself. She said if I bled through more than one pad an hour or passed a clot larger than my fist, that I needed to go to the emergency room. That totally freaked me out and thankfully didn't end up happening. The worst of it was over by about five in the morning and I was able to get a couple of hours of sleep before Hunter woke up to go to work. I thanked my body for taking care of me and for responding so well to the medicine. My mom came over the next morning. My mom came over that morning to sit with me because the doctor had said I should not be alone while taking the pills in case I started to hemorrhage. I was surprised by how, in a way, I felt a sense of relief that morning. I'd been carrying intense anxiety during the previous weeks of waiting, and now it was over. Though it wasn't the outcome I was hoping for, at least I didn't have to worry anymore. I took the second and final round of pills at 11 a.m., 12 hours after the first round, and waited for them to kick in. Thankfully, the second round was more tame than the first. It seemed like most everything had already passed. My mother-in-law came over that afternoon and watched Netflix with me while I sat through the waves of pain and bathroom visits. Compared to the six weeks of healing from Ellis' stillbirth and C-section, the recovery from my miscarriage was much less intense. Physically, I felt back to normal by the next day, which made it so much easier to start healing emotionally. My grief was more muted compared to the unrelenting heartache and despair I felt with Ellis. My feelings after the miscarriage manifested as anger and rage more so than sadness. I didn't cry very much, but felt a heat in my stomach and started swearing quite a bit. I recently read Kate Baller's book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, where she talks about how she took up swearing for Lent after being diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 35. She referenced how people in grief swear because they feel the English language has reached its limit in a time of inarticulate sorrow. This resonated with me a lot. Along with swearing, I took on a new sense of badassness. Like I could do freaking anything. I got a tattoo the next week and continued to feel unstoppable. I started doing things that made me feel good and tried new fun things like climbing on aerial silks. 
I also did a lot of online shopping in an effort to feel good in my body. I also felt a new determination to have a baby. I continued to feel anger, but it wasn't directed at anything in particular. Not at my body, or my doctors, or even at God. I know that God doesn't cause our pain, but is there to walk us through it. I know that God was just as sad and upset as I was. It took several weeks before I started to feel closer to my baseline self, both emotionally and physically. I imagine this was due to a mix of grief and the hormonal changes that result after pregnancy loss. As my rage started to fade, the bleeding that continued after the miscarriage also began to taper off. I'd been bleeding and spotting for about two weeks until I ovulated again. We started trying to get pregnant again as soon as I had signs of ovulation, but unfortunately we didn't have the same outcome as the doctor who told us she got pregnant just two weeks after her miscarriage. I got my first period about four weeks after my miscarriage, which felt like another loss in a way. I think every period feels like a loss when you're trying to conceive. This was also around the time of Ellis's first still birthday, which compounded my emotions. I made a great effort to take extra care of myself during that time and did all the things, including an appointment with my counselor, massages, yoga, a vacation to Colorado with Hunter, and a consultation with an Ayurvedic practitioner that was gifted by a friend. I also wrote an article called Let's Talk About Loss that highlighted the value of empowering women to talk about their pregnancies and losses before the 12-week supposed safe zone of pregnancy. The main reason we don't share pregnancy announcements before 12 weeks is to avoid talking about loss, but this can lead to shame and isolation for the many parents who experience it. Talking about loss feels vulnerable, but that's also where connection happens because, unfortunately, loss and pain are part of our shared human experience. There's no need for parents to have shame about pregnancy loss. It's already painful enough. And shame can't survive once you start talking about it. You can read the full article online at hellomytribe.com, and I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode. I know this episode was heavy and full of anxiety and uncertainty, but those are unfortunately common feelings that come along with pregnancy after loss, and especially recurrent loss like I've now experienced. My goal for sharing this is to help others to feel less alone who are walking a similar path. I still have a lot of hope that we will eventually have a child, one way or another, and I'll continue to share my journey along the way. I'll leave you with a prayer by writer Julia Cameron from her book, Prayers to the Great Creator. I've continued to read this through trying to conceive and during pregnancy after loss. The human heart craves certainty, yet life is sometimes uncertain. In times of ambiguity, doubt, and apprehension, I claim the certain safety of my spiritual connection. Reminding myself that even in the face of difficult change, my grounding in spirit remains secure. I find ground on which to stand. Spirit connects me to all things. It is timeless and serene. Spirit is the bedrock beneath all experience. When I am threatened and adrift, I remind myself that spirit is an inner fortress, constant and secure.
Today, I embrace spirit as the rock of my experience. Spirit gives my soul an earthly home. I hope this episode was meaningful for you. If you'd like to connect with me, you can visit taylorashleybates.com and also find me on Instagram. Please share this podcast with anyone you know who is walking through life after pregnancy loss, whether they are trying to conceive, currently pregnant, or parenting after loss. And please subscribe and review this podcast. Your feedback will help shape this podcast and will also help others to find it. Stay tuned for the next episode, where I talk with artist Sarah Fox, who adopted her rainbow baby after recurrent miscarriage. Sarah speaks openly and honestly about her miscarriages and the hardships of pregnancy after loss. She talks about how it affected her well-being and her relationship with her husband. Sarah has made beautiful artwork about her experience of loss, as well as her son, William, that you'll hear about in the episode. I look forward to sharing it with you. I'm Taylor Bates. Thank you so much for listening.